instead of doing an addendum, I think I'll just make this part two. Part two. Uh, and I, I wanted to elaborate a little more on the whole harmony at the time of death idea I was talking about in the last episode, because I thought about it afterward, and it probably sounded like I was saying that the person who's dying has to be in a state of total acceptance or the appearance of acceptance, and that wasn't what I meant at all. Because in my case, with the with the case of my mom's passing, the infection gave her a sort of dementia because the infection got to her brain. So the last couple of days of her life, she was repeatedly asking me to take her home, and they had to put soft restraints on her to keep her from trying to pull her IVs out and get up. And she was not capable of walking, barely capable of walking. And uh, so she was actually in a state of mind where she was trying to leave the hospital. She wasn't just sitting there saying, this is it. You know, I'm just going to sit here and await the inevitable. It, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't that. Um, she was unconscious when she actually passed, so there was a great deal of peace to her in that moment. But, you know, a, a very close friend of mine, her father died many years ago, and his condition his last few days was very severe, and he was literally physically thrashing and fighting and very uh, hostile. And my mom, she wasn't hostile, but she she was very, she did not understand why I wouldn't just take her home. But she wasn't mean or anything, but I understand that sometimes somebody's condition can make them fight in those final moments. And that's not what I'm talking about when I say somebody you know, there, there's some ideal of someone being in harmony with the universe, good with God, or simply accepting of death, no matter what that entails. Uh, so what I mean more is just, you know, living a life where you have no regrets, where you're naturally going to have lived an imperfect life, no matter who you are. Your life is a continual response to imperfection. You know, that's where you get into the idea of original sin, where people have different interpretations of original sin. My interpretation of original sin is that Jesus Christ embodied perfection, what someone might call the Christ-like perfection, and he was killed, he died. You are not going to be able to attain that level of perfection because you, because of, of, of your capacity and your propensity to sin— and you can't really escape sin, no matter how hard you try. It seems like the more pious you try to be, the more blind you become to the sins you may be leaving in your wake. And so my idea of the original sin is basically admitting imperfection. You can be as severe as you want about that idea. It, it can be as severe as you want it to be, but it's to me the basic premise is one that deals with imperfection. And we're all, our lives are always going to be a response to our imperfections, whether we are trying to save face and hide our imperfections, which a lot of people do, which I've certainly done, or it's accepting them. And I think sometimes in accepting them, we're also trying to save face too. So it, it, there is this kind of catch-22. There is this feeling sometimes where you don't really know if you're ever winning, but it's accepting that you're not winning, that 
allows you to at least not lose. And, you know, with death, I, you know, as I said, I haven't died. I don't, I can't tell you much about the actual process of death. You have some people who claim to have had uh, transcendental experiences with, you know, near death and their hearts have stopped and they've experienced something. And I think we should listen to those people in most cases. If you're interested, you don't have to. You know, that's the thing with all this stuff is you don't have to pay attention. You don't have to listen to anyone. And that's another reason why this whole branding things pseudoscience or trying to shut down conversations that don't mesh with your understanding of reality, you don't have to pay attention to it. You don't have to give time and energy toward that thing. You don't have to shame and blame things that don't have a direct impact on your life. And it's not your job to police every snake oil salesman. Yeah, it sucks if somebody's selling snake oil and robbing a poor person of their money who just wants to save their mother's life. You know, there's situations where people are extremely unethical, and I hope that there's some sort of system in place to challenge that. But there's some people, too, who willingly give snake oil salesmen their money, knowing you know, and it's it's just for that kind of peace of mind. It's, it, you know, you can't ever really question somebody else's intention behind their investment, what they decide to invest in. I've used the example on here for many years, my favorite example of pro-wrestling, pro-wrestling atheists, pro-wrestling atheists, and... It's people. It's these people who think it's their job to tell pro wrestling fans. And this used to be more common, you know, before the internet. You know, back, you know, when I was growing up, where there'd be people who they think it's their duty in life to say, "Pro wrestling is fake. How could you watch that crap?" And most pro wrestling fans knew it was fake. And then it was this kind of funny, like, contradiction where people would have this tendency to be like, "Pro wrestling is for white trash." And it's fake. And it's like white trash people know what a fight looks like, first of all. White trash people know way more what a real fight looks like. They know what it feels like when their dad hits them. You know, not to make fun of child abuse, but I mean, I'm just saying it's like white trash people know violence probably more than you do. And trying to tell them that pro wrestling isn't real, they know. They know. You don't, and you don't know why they're into it. Because when, when people used to try to tell other people that pro wrestling is fake, I was a huge pro wrestling fan when I was 12 years old during that big boom, a trend that I was happily a part of. As somebody who's oppositionally defiant and doesn't like to follow trends, I loved being part of that pro wrestling trend of the uh, late 90s. That was awesome. That was so much fun. It was so much fun. In the same way that I love fair-weather football fans... It's so exciting when you're part of just like a movement sometimes. As someone who rejects that in so many other situations, pro wrestling and football, and football, I'm not a Fairweather fan, but I love Fairweather fans. It's so much fun when you can walk down the street and everybody's wearing the same logo you're wearing. Uh, But in the same way, I was really excited to be a part of that fun time in pro wrestling, and I knew it was fake. And people would try to say, oh, you know, it's fake. And it's like, oh, it's your job to do that. Oh, you, oh, you're doing such a... Thank you for your service. Thank you for your service, letting everybody know pro wrestling is fake. It's, it's pro wrestling atheism. And they assume that 
they know what you're getting out of it. They think that you're watching pro wrestling because you think you're watching men actually fighting. And then they try to say that pro wrestling is a white trash, you know, it's it's some sort of white trash entertainment. And it's like, well, which is it? Do what is it fake? Or, you know, it's just one of those things where it's like white trash people know what violence looks like a lot more than you do. So they probably know what they're watching, but they just like it. It does something. And then you get into the idea of, well, what does fake really mean? Well, guys get really hurt. Their personas become who they really are. Watch shoot interviews. Watch what what are called shoot interviews. And they're, they're behind-the-scenes interviews, and they've been around forever. But now with YouTube, you can watch them pretty easily. And they talk to pro wrestlers behind the scenes when they're allegedly out of character. And you'll see that these guys become... They're part of a strange subculture where reality blends with fiction, and they really do hurt each other, but they're not trying to fight like a normal person would fight. But yet, sometimes they do deliberately hurt each other, too, and they're getting hurt constantly anyway. Even the fake stuff, the deliberately stunted fake stuff is, you know, it hurts. Uh, So that was my pro wrestling rant. Uh, but it's very similar to that, um, where there's this tendency to you need to point things out in people. I mean, when people call pro, pro wrestling fake, it's like a, a science person, one of these people who's a member of the cult of science. It's them pointing at psychic mediums saying, pseudoscience, don't you know that pseudoscience and you're paying a snake oil salesman? It's the same thing, because you're assuming that you know what that customer is getting out of that psychic medium. Uh, And I can't remember why I started talking about this as usual. Um, I guess I was, I was talking about people who are, are, Oh, I guess it's like near death. Yeah. I was talking about like the near death experience where there's this tendency to be like, it's all bullshit. And it's like, you don't have to pay attention to it. And that's how I feel about so many things. And as somebody who was a dedicated hater for so many years, and and I and I still feel the the magnetism of that, uh, and probably always will. It's easy to not pay attention to things to the point where that's even a cliche. Where it's like you don't have to pay attention to that thing you hate. And if you think it's your duty to keep calling attention to why that thing is false or why that thing is wrong or why you even just think it sucks, at what point do you not get your head fucking checked? Because you've invested so much time in being that person that it's embarrassing to admit that what you're doing is all bullshit. That's usually why. It's embarrassing to admit that you've just had tunnel vision, but it's going to be a relief when you let that go. Um, but yeah, you know, the way people talk about pro wrestling, it might as well be like pro wrestling is pseudoscience. And there's this assumption that you know exactly what that person is getting out of it. And people do it with religion as well, where it's like you assume that you know exactly what somebody is getting out of church or the Bible or chanting or anything they do that doesn't quite make sense in the world you live in. And so you should keep yourself in check when it comes to things like that. Um, but anyway, this all started because I was saying I've never died. <laughs> and uh, and how near-death experiences are a thing, and you can choose to listen to that or not. But to get back to the original point, 
you know, I want to make it clear that, you know, my mom, she was in kind of a, I wouldn't say a distressed state, but she was like kind of given some pushback in the hospital and she just didn't understand why I wouldn't take her home, which is cool because it showed that she wasn't in a lot of pain or wasn't aware of her pain and wasn't completely aware of how bad her condition was, therefore wasn't suffering, whether that was because of drugs, because the way the infection affected her, probably all of the above. It was good because the fact that she thought she was well enough to go home, you know, made me realize that she wasn't suffering excessively. She was just kind of didn't understand why she was even there. And I mentioned, too, like a family friend, you know, who had a very disruptive last few days. Um, and and that's that to me isn't disharmony. When I was talking about like somebody disruption at the time of death, I'm not talking about the person who's dying because of their condition, fighting back or in an, they're in a, an altered state of mind. I'm talking about your behavior as a witness, first of all, because I knew and, you know, I, I say this thing a lot on this show where I'm like, I'm not patting myself on the back. Meanwhile, like you're looking at me and my hand is like patting my back. And I'm like, just so you know, I'm just, I'm just I got an itch back here. I'm not patting myself on the back. But in this case, I'm going to pat myself on the back and say I somehow had the clarity of mind in my mom's final days and hours to not try to to not freak out and disrupt what was going on. You know, I I signed off on surgery. I signed off on, literally signed a piece of paper to to allow the, the staff to do certain things to try to keep her alive while that still seemed possible. But once it was clear that the clock was truly ticking down, I knew that there was nothing I could do to preserve this and the quality of of this time, you know, the quality of the the final moments wasn't going to be based around dragging the time out, you know, dragging it out longer, keeping her on respiration, unconscious for longer. I knew that none of that was going to not just solve anything, but I, I knew in a way that would have disrupted the harmony that I'm talking about. Like, if I had kept my mom on oxygen way longer than was necessary, first of all, that's a resource that could be allocated to somebody else who actually has a chance of surviving. Uh, but second of all, it would have been a, a quiet form of disruption, because I think that's what I'm getting at here. The person who's passing away can thrash. Um, you know, there, I had this Kiss Greatest Hits album as a teenager, smashes, thrashes, and hits, and it's like the person who's passing away can thrash, smash, and hit. And that doesn't mean that they're they're going out in a disruptive way. And in the same sense, you could drag out the final moments of someone's life in a quiet way. Just have them plugged up to a machine, plugged up to a respirator, and you can drag out the inevitable. And that's it's not disruptive in the sense that we would think of the word like physically, uh, but it's a it's disrupting the process in a way. And so there, it's not just that disruption is super literal. There are other ways that it happens. And just to go back to the idea that the person who's passing away can kind of thrash and they can fight back and they might be in a different mental condition. They might be experiencing some form of dementia. Um, they, uh, just to go back to that, they, um, 
Well, I mean, like, like I, the comparison I made in this just episode I did earlier today was like somebody who's trying to fight off an attacker. And not everybody is going to be Obi-Wan Kenobi and just close their eyes and stand there and let Darth Vader strike them down. It's nice. I mean, I bet it felt really cool. I bet Obi-Wan felt really cool just to be like, you know what? I'm at peace. I'm just going to get struck down. I'm so in tune with the Force that I will just die right now. You know, and I think some people have probably done that when somebody is coming after them, trying to kill them. And I, I don't know what to say about that. That's that's advanced, I guess. I, I don't know. Not everybody's going to be that way, and I think most people are going to fight off their attacker. So in the same way that a certain form of illness will make someone fight back or, or just give pushback right before they die, people will literally be fighting an attacker off as they die. And that doesn't mean that their their death isn't harmonious in some way. You know, I and I think what I'm getting at here with this idea of harmony is your conduct in life, whether you truly appreciate what it is to be alive. Because I had a thought the other day where I was like, you know, even just having the privilege to see a cute animal's face one time in your life is better than not being alive at all. Even having had one good experience, one good meal, one good day, and it's not about those sensory things necessarily either, but those are a part of it. You can't dismiss them either. But at the same time, it's like even just experiencing like one good thing, you know, and and chances are you'll experience more than that. But it's like having just had the privilege of being alive is part of that. And that's what I was getting at when I was talking about my mom's own harmony with the universe or being good with God. Her conduct was good. She knew she wasn't perfect, but she was continually responding to her own imperfections and appreciating what it meant to be a living person. And the more that you appreciate life, I believe, the less afraid you are of death because you left nothing behind. You know, you weren't thinking about what was to come, you know, what you, oh, I, I never, I never got that mansion that I dreamed of. You know, you're not thinking about that. And you see this a lot right now where people are really angry at the rich. They're really angry at people hoarding toilet paper. And that alone is proof that those people haven't won. You don't win because you have a ton of toilet paper. You don't win because you have a billion dollars. And those people don't even realize they've won either. Those people are scared to death. They are scared of death. And there are rich people, of course, who I, I think are very much, you know, in harmony with everything. And if at any point you find yourself thinking that all rich people are evil, get yourself in check immediately immediately. There are a lot of bad rich people, sure. There's a lot of bad poor people, too. And I don't mean to say that anybody is fundamentally bad, but it's just this idea that the rich are all taking something from you. Not a good idea. Not a good road to go down. We have seen what happens with that. We have seen empires built around that. We have seen philosophies built around that. We have seen gulags, you know what I mean? And uh, so it's like, I, I'm seeing a lot of that right now. And I understand because the haves and have nots are, have become really apparent over the last two weeks. It's all, they're already apparent normally, but it's that cliff has gotten a lot steeper recently. Um, but you can look at those people who have, you can look at the haves and say, 
they haven't won, and we all know that. We all know supposedly that you know money doesn't mean you've won the game of life. But we can look at those people and say, even though they have all these resources, even though they have this wealth, they still don't feel like they've won. So that should redefine what winning is to you. And when I look at my mom, she didn't have a lot of money. You know, she she was able to live a comfortable life. You know, and comfort is just means she had her desserts at the end of the day and she watched her TV shows and she was happy to do that. Uh, she had a roof over her head, her TV, and her desserts. You know, she had those. And that to her was was winning because she appreciated her life. And it's because she appreciated her life and she appreciated the lives of others and did things for others uh, that I wasn't worried about her. It was It was for those reasons that I realized, oh, she's a professional human being. And she... As a professional human being, she accepts the inevitability of death and spoke to me about it my entire life, even when I was too young to really appreciate it. You know, when I, even when it scared me as a kid, I'm glad that she spoke to me about it because it prepared me for the inevitable. And that, to me, is the sign of a professional human being. That, to me, is the sign of somebody who won. And if somebody is a professional human being who... I mean, as much as somebody can win, you know, I, I'll say that she won. I'm proud of what she did with her life. It was a success. That made me not worry, even though she had to be put in restraints, even though she was trying to pull her IVs out. I didn't feel that it was a disruptive way to leave. So that was that. That was my interpretation of it. And I also knew my job in that moment. Somehow, maybe maybe for the reasons I just mentioned, where from the time I was a little kid, she didn't shy away from the topic of death. So I knew that my job in those final moments was also not to disrupt the situation for her. And uh, th- th- I just knew that was my job right then. And it's it's one of the situations here where I will say I'll give myself some credit. I really I, I have to give myself some credit because for my own sake, because in the end, I was the one left holding the bag. I was the one literally holding her purse as I left the hospital and she would no longer hold that purse. So I was literally the one holding the bag, you know. <laughs> Uh, so it's, it's as much for my own sake as anybody else's that I made sure not to disrupt those final moments. And the Tibetan Book of the Dead talks about this stuff a little bit as well. Not that the Tibetan Book of the Dead is the, the be-all, end-all of death, but it, it is an ancient text that shows that even though it's pretty far out there, it's a far-out book, and it's kind of hard to take in, really. Uh, even, despite that, it deals with a lot of these things, and you can choose to see the practical application of uh, of what the book communicates, even though it seems pretty out there, it seems very uh, ancient, it seems archaic, it, it's, it's very, you know, religious. You can choose to see the practical applications, and it deals with people who are dying and fighting back and agitated and in all sorts of states of mind. It deals with that, and it talks about that process. So there's, at no point is there this idea that, oh, you know, you've lived this very peaceful, harmonious life where you've been 
living the life you want to live and grateful and appreciative of what it means to be alive and you're not afraid of death. Oh, but an infection got your brain and made you kind of like agitated on your deathbed. So whoops, it doesn't work that way. You know, I'm confident that it doesn't work that way. And so I just, I mean, I wanted to do this second episode just to make that clear for anybody who actually cares uh, that I'm not saying that just because, you know, that, that everything has to be perfectly tranquil. When is When are things ever that way? You know, when are things ever perfectly tranquil? Tranquil. And I mean, it comes down to like when you truly appreciate, when I truly appreciate life, it's not when it's, you know, a greeting card. It's not when it's a postcard. It's not when it's a screensaver of uh, of like some professional stock photography. You know, I appreciate life when there's different stuff going on, when I'm having to contend with things, when there's ups and downs. You know, it's the whole process. I mean, that's what it came uh, it came down to for me when I had some sort of epiphany about what it means to be grateful to be alive, it was realizing, oh, it's the whole process. And if I try to magnify any one thing, I'm going to be ignoring something else. It's the wholeness. I have to appreciate the wholeness, and I don't have to. Nobody's making me. I just realized that that was it. That was what I had. Because that's what I'm a part of. And and so that's been my own experience. And, um, you know, whether you're, you know, and and I I can't comment for people who have had loved ones die of murder or at the hands of somebody else's blatant, egregious negligence. I can't pretend to come from that point of view. And I don't know what their process is like. I can only comment on what I've had a chance to experience and what I've had a chance to observe and to some degree study, you know, because I have taken in other people's views on this. And again, though, we're talking about a whole process here. The process of wholeness, the whole process. Um, and, uh, you know, at least pro wrestling is fake. I mean, if pro wrestling was fake, it'd be... Do you actually want those men to be hitting each other with chairs? Is that what you want? Do you want guys to be bleeding? I mean, the nice thing about pro wrestling is when they bleed, they do it deliberately. It's controlled bleeding. You know? You ever heard of that band? You ever heard of that industrial noise band, controlled bleeding? That's what pro wrestlers do. It's called controlled bleeding. They bla- they call it blading. They bleed themselves. They blade themselves. They bleed, blade themselves. And uh, it's controlled, but they're still bleeding. Is that fake? Oh, because they did it deliberately, that makes it fake. It seems like a, the end justifies the means when a pro wrestler blades himself. The philosophy of pro wrestling blading. You know, people love this like Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance. I'd probably like it if I read it, although I'm too much of a rebel. I'm not going to read Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Instead, I'm going to write my own book. Instead, I'm going to write my own book. It's called, uh, I don't remember what it's called, but it's about pro wrestlers cutting themselves. (laughs) 
the end uh, justifies the means. They're still bleeding. That's what I've learned from pro wrestling. Uh, but, yeah, so, I don't know. I mean, I'll be thinking a lot about this stuff, and I'll probably be recording a lot of episodes. I say that, and maybe it'll be a couple weeks before I do, because I guess let's, let's just get away from the the topic at hand and just talk about the approach to what's going on right now. I'm seeing a lot of narcissism from creative people. Their tours have been canceled. Their art shows have been canceled. Their recording sessions have been canceled. And so, and I get it. I'm a creative person and it sucks to be, to have a roadblock when you want to get stuff done but I'm seeing a lot of a lot from creative people, from artists and musicians who are like they're they're in kind of this panic mode where it's almost like don't forget I'm an artist, D- just so you know, don't forget. And I'm saying this because I'm guilty. I've had I didn't even recognize that that's what I was doing, but I realized oh I suddenly have a desire to like share a bunch of my art, remind people about different projects I've worked on, because there's almost this weird like. Don't forget what I do. And I caught myself. And I mean, it's not that I won't share what I do and my creative stuff. But it's like at the same time, I kind of caught myself. And I'm, I'm seeing a lot of it from other people where it's like it, it, there's that narcissism of any artist, of any creative person. And I, I don't think it's some horrible narcissism. I don't think it's like actually hurts anybody. But it's something to keep in check for sure. And, uh, I mean, maybe recording podcasts. I mean, there's obviously a lot of narcissism to this, doing a podcast where I never interview anybody and I talk about myself for hours, like, <laughs> you know. Uh, but uh, but still, uh, I, I've seen this where it's like I, I think creative people are in this kind of, they're like, oh, I just don't forget about what I do. And, and if they need money, that's another thing. I understand that. I understand like wanting people to to pay you because you're in dire straits or need a little help. I mean, I've thought about doing the same thing, but I I, just, I don't really want to do that right now. Um, but yeah, there's a, there's something going on with that. And uh, I say this; it's very much a preach what you need thing. I have to clarify that sometimes. You know, my slogan on here is "preach what you need." If I'm being critical of something, often it's because I recognize it in myself, and I didn't always know that. And it's one of those self-help cliches where it's like, when you find yourself really just aggressively upset at somebody, it's either because you don't understand them, and you think you do. Or it's because you recognize a quality in yourself in them and you don't want to accept it and it's easier just to hate the person. Uh, In the same way that I feel like I'm qualified to talk about being fat because I was fat for 20 years, I feel like I'm qualified to talk about misgivings and being a hater because I was a hater for 30 years and still know what it's like. And still, and still, sometimes think that way, and and so it's one of those things though where if I'm if I'm criticizing something, there's a strong chance it's because I recognize the root of that in myself, and I'm trying to contend with it. So when I point out like I'm really seeing the narcissism come out of artists right now, it's because I have the same exact tendency. Um, and right now I just I want to talk. I'm enjoying talking, and I but I even have reservations about doing this. 
I even have reserv. Of course, I do, and I, I have reservations about what exactly I should do. Because I'm suddenly feeling the need to express myself even more. I'm finding the desire to express myself even more than I normally do, and I feel like I don't shy away that much from self-expression. But there's also a part of me that's like, should I just go totally silent? And and not for anybody else, for me. Is it going to benefit me more to spend the next two weeks being completely silent and just having my own thoughts echo inside of my head without going anywhere? Because I've also been doing writing. I felt the desire to talk and write. I haven't wanted to draw. I haven't wanted to get involved in any, like, what I would call standard creativity. Uh, it's more just thinking about life and death. I really just, that's all I want to do. <laughs> all I want to do is talk about pro wrestling life and death. And that's going to be the name of my Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance book. Life and Death and Pro Wrestling. Uh, life and Death and Controlled Bleeding in Pro Wrestling. That's kind of where I'm at, though. That's kind of where I'm at. And I think I just have to accept that and not worry too much because it's really unimportant. And that's actually a whole other form of narcissism that you can suck yourself into where it's like, it matters so much whether I do or don't. It's some stupid Hamlet thing, like to be or not to be. It's like, uh, get away from that, man. Get away from that. Uh, but yeah, this was just kind of an addendum episode. I didn't want to call it an addendum because I, I knew that it was going to be longer than that. I wanted to just clarify that it's like, even if someone's thrashing, smashing, and hitting in their final moments in life, I don't see that as a disharmonious death. And something that's been on my mind a lot is how much opportunity you have available to you already. And I wrote something yesterday, and... Um, I thought about reading it on here. I wrote something, and I, but I don't like to read. I like to riff. I don't, I don't like to read. I like to riff. Uh, but one of the points in it was, you know, I think people are hopefully realizing how much opportunity they had to do things before this happened. And now that they're being told they have to stay inside and waste time, there's, uh, you know, they don't want to stay inside and waste time, even though that's what they've been doing. And you don't realize the opportunities you already had. And there's this kind of myth surrounding immortality. And it's this idea that, oh, an immortal being is eventually going to achieve enlightenment or great wisdom. And is that true? Because you already have a ton of time in life to do that very thing, yet you waste it knowing that you have a limited amount of time. So if you were immortal and you had an endless amount of time, who's to say you wouldn't just waste more time? Shouldn't the prospect of death make you want to change yourself for the better, change your conduct to get good with God, to, harm, to harmonize with the universe? Shouldn't knowing death is a very real possibility at any time expedite that process? Yet people don't. And I feel I'm truly grateful that uh, right now I could die tonight. And I don't feel like I would have any true regrets. 
I don't know whether I'm a professional human being. You know, I described my mom that way. Uh, I don't know. I don't consider myself one. But I do know that I wouldn't feel out of step with what it means to be alive. And because I don't feel out of step with what it means to be alive, I'm not afraid of death itself. And I don't want to suffer on the road to death, but I'm not afraid of death itself right now. And I feel grateful for that. But a lot of people don't feel the same way because they don't feel like they have won. They don't feel like they are professional human beings. So if they were to die tonight, they would feel that something was missing and they aren't ready. But what are they doing to make themselves ready? They think they need more of something, more resources. You have every resource already available to you to harmonize with what it means to be alive and to not fear death. You already have that available to you. And every teaching that's worth its weight in... I was going to say salt, but let's say balls. Any teaching that's worth its weight in balls. Balls of what? I don't know. Uh, (laughs) Any teaching that's just worth its weight, period, is going to teach you that you already have what's already available to you and therefore needs to teach you nothing. And you need to accept yourself who you are, but not justify your behavior. You know, you you may need to make changes in your mindset, if nothing else. But I know that right now I would not be upset with what my life was because I feel like I did the things that I wanted to do. And I also feel like I reached a point where I just appreciated the fact that I had any time at all. I, I just, you know, I, I, I reached that point where I just realized what a privilege it was to have even taken one breath. And, you know, I, I, don't, I don't sit there just thinking that all the time, but it's something in the bigger picture that I've come to realize. And it's, it's through that love of life that I've realized I have no fear of leaving life, no matter what comes. And seeing my mom as somebody who lived that exact way, gave me a blueprint that I don't even need to look at, but I know it's there. And that is powerful to me. And accepting that winning or losing doesn't matter. There, you know, you're always going to be climbing the mountain. You're always going to be pushing the boulder. It's always going to roll back down. Realizing that and accepting that. And that's the process. Pushing the boulder is the process. It rolling back down is the process. And accepting the whole process of what it is to be alive makes you accept also the prospect of death. Because that is actually part of the larger process, and life is only defined by the fact that you die. And, uh, yeah, I'm... I'm going to wrap this here episode up because uh, I feel like I'll just be repeating the same point over and over again. I'll just be pushing the same boulder o- up over and over again. And God knows I do enough of that anyway.
Take. 